0: Welcome to church, welcome to this moment wherever you are joining us today. Today we uh, continue on in our sort of collection of series called Pillars. It's sort of looking at what have Christians always believed, the sort of basics of our theology. And today we come to series four on salvation. Uh, The first one we did was um, was on the Bible, it was called Bestseller. And then we got to Trinity, and we looked at God as one per, one God who exists eternally in three persons. And then last time, end of last year, we got to origins, and we looked at the good world God created, and humanity placed on the earth as God's image bearers, His reflection and representatives on the earth. God wanted to fill the earth with His image bearers, but of course humanity rebelled, rebelled against God, wanted to rule by themselves, and, and creation, and the whole of humanity fell as a result. And so the end. Of of that series left us with this lingering question what would God do? Had His plans been frustrated? Had they failed? What would God do about that and this grand story? Emerges. You think of the great stories of our world. You think of Frodo and Samwise Ganges. You know, you think of Narnia. Um, you think of uh, things like, you know, the epic battles of good versus evil in, in Marvel and in Guardians of the Galaxy. Things like that. You know, all of these grand stories point to the greatest story of all. I think it shows in us this looking to and this longing for this grand overarching story. It's a story that centers on the person of Jesus. Christ. When humanity fell, God sent His one and only Son into the world to live the life we should have lived, die the death that we deserve, and rise again, that we might be caught up into this grand story that God has been telling since before the creation of the world, that we might be saved, that we might live forever in relationship with one another, in relationship with God. But within that story that centers on Jesus, there are four aspects that we're going to unpack in the next Four weeks. And the first one um, that we're going to look at today is out of Romans 8. And I want you to take away this big idea that salvation starts with God. If you remember nothing else, salvation starts with God. God, so go with me. Romans 8, we're just going to read uh, three verses. If I get my words out, three verses. Verse 28 says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also Uh, justified. In those he justified, he also glorified. You might have noticed this word in their predestination. That's what we're going to look at today. Don't be scared. Don't run off. Okay, we're going to look at that word today. I want you to think, I want you to understand four things about that word. Number one is the predestination comes with a blessing. Verse 28 says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who Love him. The context of Romans 8, this Romans is this grand story of salvation. In Romans 8, um, the, the context is suffering you know verse 18 talks about I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory then you get this whole of sort of the whole of creation is groaning and we are groaning longing for new bodies longing for redeemed bodies then in verse 26 you know it talks about the sort of people that are so struggling to pray such is their predicament that they're like groaning but the spirit steps in and prays for them that's the context and off the back of that Paul then says and we know predestination is presented as something that's to give us hope, something to, that's to be relied upon, something that is that is good, and just to be looked uh, to, give us something to look forward to. That when it's hard, no matter what is going on in our world, we know that God is working for our ultimate good. One of the things you see in this is, um, you know, God works for the good. The, the Greek literally is sort of God is, is, he is working together. He's working these things together. It reminds me of a sort of master baker. I was having a breakfast around Easter time with my friend um, in a cafe in Miramar. And um, the baker is working out an ultimate good. Like, who doesn't love hot cross buns? Come on. Give me an amen. And, um and, and, you know, within there, and he was complaining because he just stank of, like, mixed spice or allspice, whatever it is that goes in. He stanks his stink of it. And he's like, I hate Easter. We have to cook so many hot cross buns. And I just smell of the stuff. When you think of the ingredients, you know, there's some beautiful ingredients in there that you could just eat a million of, like raisins. And then there's things like flour. Who wants to eat a lot of flour? Like, that is not desirable at all. Who wants to eat a lot of baking powder? Not desirable at all. And yet the master baker knows the quantities, and he works it together to produce the ultimate Good, I want to suggest that predestination shows us that our master baker, God himself, takes the ingredients of our lives that we love, the things that we could do every day with joy, and he takes the painful things and the traumatic things and the desperate moments and he works them together. And we know that you know every day is not a blast in our lives, and yet we can be confident because of what is presented here that He is working out our ultimate good. He's working all those things together. So predestination comes with a blessing. Secondly, uh, predestin- predestination comes with an origin. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You know the age-old question, which came first, chicken or egg? You know When it comes to salvation, which came first? Him or us. It's him. God is eternal in his eternity past. He came up with salvation himself. It's a salvation that's not reliant on us. He is the start of it. Salvation starts with God. When you think about it, think about our culture, think about our world. Every other religion, every other worldview is a salvation based on us. You have to abide by a set of rules. You have to work yourself up to a certain standard. You have to prove yourself before God. You have to earn your salvation. It is a salvation that starts with us, not with God. It is a salvation that starts with Him. Think about our culture You've got to prove yourself worthy in our culture. You've got to be wealthy enough. You've got to be beautiful enough. You've got to be strong enough. You've got to have the smarts. You know, or even in our social media co- culture, isn't it? Who's popular enough? Isn't, isn't that what proves whether you're worthy? And yet that is a salvation that starts with us. We're trying to rescue ourselves. We're trying to prove ourselves. No, salvation, the greatest grand story that God is telling, is a salvation that starts with God. And therefore, it's a salvation that is not reliant on you. It began with him and it ends with him and he will do it. So it has a blessing. It has an origin and it also has a purpose. I've already read it twice. Let's read it again. To be conformed to the image of his son. I've got three daughters. They love Netflix. And there's a show on there called Nailed It. I don't know if you've seen it. But people, uh, this is an example, but but you get like a master baker on there. It's all about baking tonight. I don't know why. Who's hungry? And um, <laughs> there's like some sort of master baker. And they produce this incredible like cake that's like giant and just looks exactly like a shoe. Or Who wants a cake that looks like a shoe? I don't know why I picked that example. But you know, like like a drum or a stack of presents or something like that. Or this like, you know, I am Groot, you know? Uh, there's like, you know, there's selection. Doesn't it look awesome? And then these contestants come on, and they try and imitate it. And, the, uh, and what often happens is something a little more like this, you know, and they're like, nailed it, you know? And so the show's about, it's great TV, and um, my girls love it, and I'd love to say I don't watch it, but you know, I may uh, just walk slowly past the TV sometimes, you know? And I just wonder if for some of us, when, when we read words like this and it says, God has determined that you will be conformed to the, to, the, to, 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 to the image of Jesus, I just wonder whether we think we're actually in some sort of big version of nailed it. That God sets this incredible standard and we know that our lives are really just going to look like this. And we know that He just sets a standard that we are never going to come up to. But predestination says, That God has a purpose and His purpose will stand. That if you have believed in Jesus, His purpose is that He will ensure that you are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. This is no nailed it. You are going to make it. Why? Well, you have to think back. This is why we've done these series in this order. Go back to Origins. We said that God made humanity in His image. His design was that He would fill the earth with His image bearers. It was a world that was going to thrive because it would be filled with God's representatives, God's reflection, people who would rule, people who would make decisions as if God was making those decisions himself. And then the fall comes because we rebelled against that. We said, we want things to be our own way. We want to rule ourselves, And the whole thing fell apart. But God's plan was only frustrated, not finished. God's plan was damaged, but not destroyed. God's planned will prevail. And so God sends His one and only Son, the image of God par excellence, into the world. And in his death and his resurrection and in the coming of the Holy Spirit, he has made a way for us to actually live out the life where we become progressively more and more like Jesus until Jesus returns and we see him face to face and we are finally and fully conformed to the image of Jesus. God's purposes will prevail. And that is what Paul is talking about here. But predestination also comes with a question. And this is where there's been so much discussion and and argument and division in the church over the years. Not this church, but many churches, you know, the church globally. Is it about, is it more about uh, human decision or is it about God's sovereignty? If God is sovereign, is my choice really worth anything? If, if I can just freely choose, is God really sovereign? Like, How do those two things work? I want to give you some top tips maybe on having a conversation with people about this or other things. Firstly, I want you to know that not all doctrines are equal. Some are more important than others. There are about seven core doctrines that Christians believe about things like the personal work of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, His future physical return, God as Trinity. Those things are core. You just can't be a Christian. Unless you believe those things, I will die on hell for those beliefs. And then you get doctrines that are sort of important, and they have an effect on how we do church and how we live out our faith and how we interpret the Bible. They're important, but but genuine Christians have conversation about that. I'm talking about things like a future literal reign of Jesus for 1,000 years. I'm talking about speaking in tongues. I'm talking about things like women in eldership. I'm talking about predestination. These are important doctrines. But you can, you can disagree on the exact nature of them and still be a Christian. And then you get, uh, uh, you know, opinions, things like the two witnesses in Revelation. Like, who actually knows? It doesn't really have an impact. We're not going to argue about that until Jesus returns, right? So you have to make sure that you put things in their proper order. And when we gather around, I mean, think of it, I'm just imagining for a moment, like an archery target, like what is core is in the middle, and then lesser and lesser important things as we go out. So let's agree on the center, and then let's have a meaningful conversation about what's outside, knowing that we're united by what's in the middle, not, um, and not divided by what comes outside of that. Secondly, is that these two things, like human will and, and, and God's sovereignty, are actually not that far apart. We've pretended like they are. We've pretended like these views are poles apart. But actually, when you think of it, that, 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 that separation is really just relative. And in a conversation around a coffee table, it might feel quite big. But when you think of the grand story that God has begun in eternity past and will be told throughout eternity future, these things are actually not that far apart. Nobody's doubting that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Nobody's doubting that it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus and only that that sins are forgiven. Nobody's doubting those things. We're just talking about little things within that. So let's just not pretend like we're apart. Let's, let, let's have a conversation in the middle. And finally, there's mystery, right? If God is infinite and salvation is drawn from the mind of an infinite God, then it is inevitable there will be some things that you and I cannot reconcile. You know, for God to be sovereign and for our world to be meaningful, those things feel like they they don't reconcile. And yet the Bible communicates that God is sovereign. And the Bible communicates so clearly that we will be judged on the decisions we make. Both of those things are real. And there's this mystery about how they they reconcile. And that might be uncomfortable for you. But can I just suggest that if you've got a God you can work out, you have not got a God worthy of worship. But if there are things that we're like, God, I don't understand this. But in the mystery, in the tension, I'm going to adore you and believe those things are true and adore you that you are not like me. You are holy and other and infinite, and I adore you and I worship you, and I trust you. But I'm going to put my cards on the table. I know you want me to, and I personally, and and, and the sort of tradition that this church comes from, we're going to lean generally um, towards human... uh, Whoa, I nearly slipped up there. Towards God's sovereignty. And let me just give you some reasons why I personally lean that way. Number one is context, right? I've just said uh, Romans 8, the end of it is about suffering. It's about people in difficulty, and I just wonder what hope is being given at the end of this chapter when Paul says, and we know, sort of, because it's sort of reliant on you. I don't know what encouragement that is. I think Paul is really clear here that God, what God has begun in you, he is going to finish. And so I think that the the encouragement makes me lean towards more towards God's sovereignty there than it does towards my decision. Secondly, the words. When you go to verse thirty, and those God predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Those words are in the past tense. Okay. What that means is in God's mind, when you came to faith in Christ Jesus, when uh, it was already done that he was going to glorify you, God so sees that thing as already happening and so definite that it's going to happen that it's like for him it's in the past. You're already glorified in some way in eternity. It's crazy, I know, but this is the infinite God we believe in. The third reason I believe, when you go from Romans 8, you head into Romans 9, it is the biggest chapter in all of Scripture on the sovereignty of God. Then you go to Romans 10, it is the biggest chapter in all of Scripture on the meaningful decisions that humans make and us being responsible for those. But Romans 9 comes before Romans 10. And so I think both exist, but I think one has to come before the other. And finally, you go to Ephesians 2. One of my favorite books in the Bible. My favorite book in the Bible. It's not beat around the bungalow. Um, But it says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Notice the language. This is the situation that Paul communicates that we are in because of our sin. Dead. Stuck. Stuck helpless. I don't think that what Paul is communicating is people who have some sort of tiny capacity to make a meaningful decision about whether they believe in Jesus or not. I remember um, disciplining my girls when they were younger. One of our girls, particularly strong willed you know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I can remember giving her a consequence And she was so fixed in what she was going to do that I could have said, if you do not do what I want you to do, I will chop off both of your arms. And she was just beyond help. Like there was no way. She was just stuck in it. She needed me to help her out of it. I think we are so dead in our sins. There is nothing in us that would choose God in and of ourselves except for the fact that He chose you before the foundation of the world and He will bring you to a point where you can come to faith. Faith, as Ephesians communicates, is a gift from God. Salvation starts with Him and it ends with Him and it centers around Him. He is everything in it. But I also want to acknowledge there's a caution here, right? Right? Because if you believe this, if you lean the way that I do, and you don't have to, there are people and there are leaders in our church that don't lean the way I do, but there is a caution with the way I'm leaning. One is that you can become really apathetic about sharing the gospel. Because if God's already chosen before the foundation of the earth, what's the point? And the second thing is you can go, well, if God's already basically glorified me in the past in some way, then what's the point in leaning into that? I'm just going to live how I want, and He'll make sure I get there. Now, that's a stupid way to live. But also, let me give you just an example of why I think that's a really silly way to see that. I want you to imagine you're playing, you're about to step into the Rugby World Cup final. And as you walk onto the field, somebody says to you, I guarantee that you are going to win this game. All of the stress, all of the pressure, all of the worry of that game goes out the window. You have two options. One option is you just sit down and you go, cool, I don't need to do anything. I'm just gonna walk onto that field and I'm gonna sit there and do absolutely nothing. I don't think you'd do that. I think you'd do the second thing, which is you go, I wonder how many tries we can score. I'm gonna enjoy this. We know we're gonna win. So I'm gonna give this everything. I'm gonna try even harder and I'm gonna enjoy every single moment of it. And it might be hard, they might score, but I know in the end we're gonna win. And I think that's what is going on here. And when God says, You are going to make it. I'm going to see you through. It doesn't lead us to apathy. Predestination means God guarantees that some people are going to come to faith. That should cause us to lean into sharing the gospel because we know it's going to be a fruitful work. It should cause us to lean into following Jesus because we know that it's not relying on us. We know that we're not going to fail at it. We know as we we lean into the work that God is doing in us and in the world, God is going to bring fruit there. And it's going to bring life in all its fullness. I want to suggest that this doctrine doesn't lead you to apathy. I think it leads you in quite the opposite direction. So how does we respond with the salvation that starts with God and ends with God? I think number one today, if you have never come to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, do not wait another moment. God sees your death in your sin. You are stuck in and of yourself, but He sent His one and only Son as the greatest expression of I love you and I am for you and I want life in all its fullness for you. Today, you have the opportunity to say, God, I believe in that. God, I believe in Jesus. Turn my life around. Bring me to life. You can make that decision right now. You can pray that prayer before God right now. Second response, I think, is that we get to trust God. We get to say, God, (laughs) I can see this starts with you and it ends with you. I'm going to trust you with that. I'm going to trust that I'm not going to be like some, you know, version of nailed it. But you are going to conform me to the image of a son. I trust you with that. I trust that even in the darkest times of my life, you are working out good. I also think it's important that we actually participate in what God's doing. He is making you more like Jesus. Lean into that. Lean into that. Make the most of it. You'll avoid so many mistakes and so much pain if you just let God do that work through you today. Participate in it. Lean into it. Gather with a group of people around you, like your life group, who are going to actually encourage you in that and you can encourage them in it. And finally, isn't this a great salvation story? Isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't this a message worth sharing? Our city and our nation are so secular and so dark. I love, like honestly, I love Wellington. I'm not bagging on Wellington. I love, like first time I came this, this felt like home. There are so many things I love about this city and yet there's a spiritual darkness. There's so many people longing to hear this story and you're a person who has it in your being become captivated like it, by it, and share it. Should we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that salvation starts with you. We want to thank you that this grand story that humanity longs for, you planned it, and you accomplished it in Jesus, and you are carrying out, and you are finishing it. Lord God, we pray for those today who are making a decision to believe in you for the first time. Thank you as they confess simply right now, that they believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank you that you wash away every sin. Thank you that you pour your spirit into them. Thank you that you make them brand new and give them new life. God, help them in these new steps of this new life. Gather around them a great church community that are going to encourage them in that step. And Lord, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, whether in this moment as we decide right now, whether we've been following you a long time, Lord, let us, let us be captivated by this grand story of salvation. Let us trust in it. Let us share it and let us see it work out in our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you and we give ourselves to you again in your wonderful name. Amen.